So, Michael. I've been on I sabbatical. I've been on sabbatical. Yeah, yeah. It's been a uh, too long, Luke. But uh, yeah, not sure how to feel about it. You know, part of me has been felt a little bit liberated, but the other part has. Uh, no, actually, I've, I don't know exactly how to feel about it. I've missed you at all. Oh, well, <laughs> fair fair you had some great guests in the meantime, <laughs> both Ross and Johnny. Yeah, where have you been? I've been uh, involved in my, well, not mine, but you know, a campaign to kind of. Get Sydney's nightlife movie again, um, yep. which uh, sort of culminated ahead of the election. And uh, but it's an ongoing piece of work, really, in my capacity as chair of the Nighttime Industries Association. So mm-hmm. we're in a process of trying to assess the political landscape post-election, working out what our priorities are, and um, you know, like there's been uh, a subject which I can go into in a lot of depth, as you know. So I won't do it now, but uh, yeah. there's plenty of work to be done, shall we say? Um, but you know, the key, here's, here's a key takeaway. In the course of all the work that we did, um, Deloitte released a report that said that there was 16 billion bucks being left on the table annually just in Sydney alone as a result of an underperforming nighttime economy. So, yeah, right. you know, that is a huge, huge number. Yeah. Um, that's not New South Wales, that is Sydney. You know? So getting regulatory measures right is pretty important. And I think, um, you know, you'll be hearing a lot about that in the in the coming years. So, yeah. Mm, but awesome. um, pity I missed out on a few great episodes, but um, enjoyed listening. Um, so, and who, who have we got on today? Uh, mate, it's Chris Grinham. So Chris uh, is, well, he uh, widely touted as the you know, premier designer, I guess, within hospitality circles in, I would suggest, Australia. Um, yeah. Predominant amount of work comes out of Sydney, but I actually, you obviously organised this guest, but um, knew Chris from a lot of the work that he did with us at Keystone. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, you know, Worked with him when we opened up the Newtown Hotel, actually, oh. and that was a project that was was pretty amazing at the time. Still, obviously, is. But um, he works with the likes of Solitel, um, obviously Keystone, um, a lot of other businesses that are really, I guess, at the top of their game and looking for someone who genuinely understands what it takes to create, design, execute a, a market-leading hospitality business. So. I guess the conversation will range from what he's seeing out in the market and um, you know some of the, the challenges or positives that he sees in hospitality right now. So it should be a pretty interesting chat. He is designer to the stars. Let's get into it. <laughs> I'm actually really disappointed there's not the intro music because actually there's one thing I was like, I have this mental picture of Mike Rodriguez getting dressed in the morning to that music. <laughs> <laughs> What do I get dressed to? Um, I've got a playlist called Closing Time. Whenever I'm up against it. <laughs> Is that in reference to your wife? <laughs> Is that business time? It's Well, it's when you... Well, we were trying to close a deal, selling time out, and it was just fucking not closing. And I'm just like, right, this shit ends now. And I sent around, I put together a playlist, yeah. and I sent it around to everyone on the deal, and mm. I said, today, this finishes... We're going to do all these things, and that's it. For those like musical inspiration, I prepared this playlist. You know, have have a go at it. Did so, you? Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's one of those things. Lose yourself, Eminem. Closing time. Sign sealed, delivered. I'm yours. End of the line. My way. We're the champions. I'm the tiger. You know. Jeez. I've thought about this. I so play of the tiger. Mm. Mike, hit the road, Jack. Feeling all right. Man, how much time did you need to close this deal? 
It should have been less time spent listening to music. Hopefully, it wasn't, on hopefully the it wasn't the crying game. <laughs> <laughs> have we started? Yeah, we have. All right. Chris Grittam, what a pleasure to have you on. It's been... Thank you, Michael. Too long. I can't believe we've gone 12 episodes and not got Sydney, Australia, the world's oh, go. foremost <laughs> designer in to talk about venues. But good to see you, pal. Um, loving the panties out. I think um, <laughs> it's going. Design inspiration there, Neil Perry, no doubt. No, no, no. <laughs> it was it was actually a period where uh, um, pull the mic in front of you, man. <laughs> people, the, the people want to hear. They want to hear. What did we have? I had. I think I'd organised to get a haircut sixteen times, and sixteen times I'd cancelled, and eventually it was just too long and too this. Then I just said, "Bugger it, I'll just own it." So <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh well, no. On a serious note, welcome to the Back of the House podcast. I'm mm-hmm. here with Luke Thank Butler. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be back. I've it's missed a couple time. of you, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's been months. I've been, I've been out there single-handedly, not really, with about fifty thousand other people trying to uh, keep it's Sydney's global. nightlife moving again. Um, uh, and it looks like I'll be gainfully employed for another decade Sorry. trying to do so. <laughs> anyway, um, but it's uh, great to have you on because I think that uh, we've had a lot of people, I guess, in the trade in terms of chefs and bartenders and so forth, but obviously design of a venue uh, or space is, mm. well, let's debate how important, but... You know, you're there in it, whether you're eating or drinking or not. I guess is the is the, is, is the observation. Um, like, and so great to have you on to give us some coaching on it. So, um, you've have been associated with some pretty quintessential Sydney venues, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. on yeah, your, your CV is a, a masterclass in um, venues of note, including Barangaroo House, Chizzy Wallara, uh, Opera Bar, and um, I guess um, the Winery, amongst others. But and you've worked with just some of the biggest names in um, design. How are you feeling? I'm pumping up your tyres now. You're uh, a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, welcome. And um, I guess, like, what? how did you get into the game in the first place? You're sitting at home one night doodling and someone said, oh, you look like all right. No, far from it. Um, actually, funnily enough, the first hospo gig we had was the Sugar Mill. Yeah, right. Um, I know Phrase Short was looking for someone who could document the project properly. <laughs> mm. so that, was two, that must have been 2008 that would have, that project would have begun. I think we're from that 2009. I'm, I'm struggling, but unfortunately it all bleeds in from one to the other. But yeah, yeah. And that was kind of like the first significant hospital job we did. Yeah, right. And then from there it's sort of... And it, for us it wasn't really something that we ever stepped out of our way to get involved in, but it just became... A huge part of our business. I don't know. It was, it's interesting. Sometimes you um, you start down a road and it suddenly fits. And mm. It feels comfortable, and you kind of get to know it, and you start to breathe it, and then suddenly you, you know, okay, hang on, I actually, I, I understand this. It, it makes sense, and you know, that's kind of where we got to. So, just for context, H and E is the business that you are co-founder yes. and director of, and would be a general architecture practice. Yeah, yes, we do a whole gamut of things, and but over the last number of years, I'd suggest to you that hospitals become hospitality projects in general have become probably seventy percent of our business. Yeah, so right. it's, it's substantial. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've been really lucky in that we've developed a really strong relationship with a, you know, half a dozen really key core clients, and yeah, they keep coming. And while they keep coming, I guess we'll keep pushing it out. What was the 
focus of the business prior to, say, the sugar mill job? What, what kind um, of oh, so we, we were doing all sorts of things. You know, there was a, a modicum of medium density housing, commercial projects, the odd house. Well, we still do bits and pieces of all those things, but as I say, it's just... Um, Mm. And it's interesting because from our perspective and, uh, you know, we've <laughs> wind the clock forward to where we are today and we're starting to find that the stuff that we'd done previously mm. is starting to, you know, like a lot of the commercial clients we have are suddenly sitting there going, hang on, this hospitality capers, we need to talk to you because we need to understand how that can inform what we're doing moving forward. But, you know, retail's changed, commercial projects have changed. So mm. how does that, how do I re-engage with a group of people who... What's that next big thing that's going to attract them to my building, to what I'm doing? Yeah. How do I get them to come through the door? You know, if I'm building a big shopping centre or if I'm doing mm. a big commercial project, what's that attractor? And, you know, so it's been interesting to see how, um, you know, suddenly some much more significant bigger players, that, to be honest, I was always, you know, you always want to be working with, are suddenly coming to you and saying, how can you guys help us? work out this what can mm. we do here and so it's been it's it's, a, it's an interesting sort of mix of how you know and, and it's uh, for us at the moment it's a real you know it's a quandary with the way we're working and that we've suddenly got these really small scale intricate very detailed little projects but then the next that we're master planning mm. really big significant projects and switching your brain from one scale to another it's uh, it certainly throws up its challenges yeah it's um, interesting that you say that. Obviously, we had a chat before. We've known each other since mm. Keystone. Um, <clears throat> the correlation between what you're describing there and the business that I'm in in people is it's it's almost like for like. It's, it's exactly the same. Businesses that would never have traditionally looked at people from hospitality environments in the same instance or same exact same, I guess, environments that I would assume you're working with, whether it be shopping centres, um, retail precincts, property developers, are coming to us now looking for people to go in and run those environments where they would never have looked Retail's at Retail's the big one because mm. it's facing such a challenge from a massive changes in technology. Mm. You know, I don't need to walk up the main street of a to go shopping anymore obviously you can do it all online and all the rest of it so if I'm a property developer or a property owner what's the thing that's going to attract someone it's food and beverage isn't it and it's, 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 a big, it's a big part of it yeah. absolutely it's a massive part of that mm. what's going to get people to come through the door stop linger hang around definitely a part of that so how do you apply what you've learned I guess or evolved over the last 10 years to those environments like how, how would you take a um, Chizik approach and, I mean, and it's all about how do you create a comfortable environment for someone what's going to make them stop mm. literally get them off the phone get them to concentrate get them to think about what they're doing um, enjoy themselves without feeling like they're rushing off to the next thing and that you know from a hospitality perspective if you do your job properly you, you're going to do that you're going to make people stop think linger hang around and enjoy themselves and enjoy the moment. And that's one of the big things we try to do is actually take some of that sort of learning through those experiences of what does and doesn't work and roll them into different sectors. Absolutely. Mm. So at the... I don't know if you want to talk about it, but what... I mean, large-scale stuff you're working on at the moment in terms of, like, precinct planning or... Um, Yeah, I mean, we've we've got one project with GPT up in in Newcastle where they've got a sector of uh, an existing shopping centre that just hasn't worked. And they came to us looking at, well, what can we do? And we've 
reimagined what that could be from and it's, it's not just about design it's about concept mm. you know what is the narrative for this whole area what's 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 it going to be what's the mix who's it need to be so you know when we we pitched for that project it was very much around um thinking about who are the sorts of who are the people in newcastle that have been successful and it's you know those sort of nitty you know gritty little um guys who have just created something mm dug their little niche and, you know, you go and talk to them and think about, well, how do they fit into a shopping centre model? Well, they don't really. So how do we actually then craft the space to suit them so it becomes a precinct where suddenly other people are coming at other other times of the day or night? And that's probably Mm. one of the other big things is how do you actually make sure that depending on what you're trying to achieve, people are coming and experiencing different things depending on what they're after at different times of the day and night. Is that similar to the approach that you would take traditionally with an on-premise menu, a sugar mill? Absolutely. Right. 100%. I mean, you you, you really want to be sitting there and thinking about how does does this space offer different things to different people? Um, Nothing worse than seeing a venue that's a cracker at night and Mm. it's closed during the day because they just can't get a crowd. Mm. You know, what are they missing from a revenue perspective because they've, you know, they're still paying rent. Mm. I ask this with the view that maybe someone listening is thinking about their business in this way. Mm. So what, what would your process be in that sense? Is, is it an empirical process where you go about sourcing data that will support, yeah, well, you know, assumptions or is it more just about feel and gut and... and it's a mix of both. Right. You know, quite often it starts with the gut feel and you go out and prove it up. Right. You know, go and do some research, do some checking. Mm. What's that research look like, though? Is that census data or is it... It's, is it's it a mix of everything, absolutely. Census yeah, right. data is a, a big part of what we would certainly look at. You mm. know, I want to know what the spend per head's going to be. What up? Is the, is the money out there to actually, you know, to shore up the concept? Yeah. Not much point building a Taj Mahal if no one's going to come. Mm. And so that's one of the big things we try and do is actually really target the offer to suit the market. Yeah. But also give them, a, you know, as I say, various reasons to go there. It's not just about a one-trick pony anymore, I think, mm. you know. Probably something we'll get to a bit later on, but, God, it, it terrifies me how much money is being spent on hospitality venues. The fit-out costs are just... In terms of the spend for the utilisation rate, is that where you hit it? It's, it's both. It's the, the cost of setting up a new venue is extraordinary. Extraordinary. And when you sit there and think about how the hell's that been funded, and that's only getting paid through the cash register of the customer coming in and, and spending their hard earned it's a tough market. And, you know, it's something we're very conscious of is making sure that, you know, it wouldn't be the first time we've sat down with clients and said, hang on, this doesn't work. I don't understand how you're going to make this stack up. I guess, like, I'm, I don't know if you want to jump into this one yeah. now. But, like, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the difference between, I think, is it not the difference between what's a hospitality business on the one hand and what's a property business on the other? And a number of our large-scale hospitality businesses are actually running as quasi-property businesses. Absolutely. So the maths isn't just adding up in terms of... Yeah, but, the, but I think those guys are right. <laughs> As a percentage, they're probably a major player, but as a percentage of the people who are actually the, the quantum of businesses out there are fairly small. Yeah. Mm. I mean, how many people can you think of that you guys could count on that are actually in that market who are, you know, their, their hospitality office is, is mainly a property player? It's not many. 
They've probably got a few venues. Well, uh, this is what the, I think this is what the debate is, isn't it? You yeah. Know, like there's um in in terms of like Eastern Seaboard of Australia, mm. property just continues to yeah. move in one direction. So absolutely. Uh, exactly. But it'd be interesting, as Mike. Sorry, it'd be interesting to understand. And I don't know if I, to be honest, it's something I have never checked. Is how many operators actually own their own the property in which yeah. they actually are operating? Yeah, it'd have to be a fairly small percentage, I would think, within the pub and especially across different sectors. Within pub sector, probably a much higher percentage. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. But in restaurants, you'd have to say a vast majority, like nineties, yeah. are going to be they're at least old. So therefore, yeah. your business model is completely different. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but I guess I'm also looking at you know your a lot of your clients. I guess specifically, yeah. But a lot of our clients definitely, they you know, yeah. there's there's a, a big right. pub play there. Yeah. They certainly may have restaurants and other experiences yeah, like that. But they, but you know, the pub stuff is a very different kettle of fish. Yeah. yeah. So just on that, like this is taking a slight like, well, just say for someone that's listening that is, um, and take from me, Chris is at the top of his game in terms of design, but um, no doubt and justifiably so comes with a price tag. But I'm just say a small. First time venue owner, I'm about to open a bar or restaurant for 100 people. Mm-hmm. Um, What's it going to cost to play? <laughs> <laughs> if, okay, if I'll give you an example. If, where, I where, your, if I can't afford your services, what are the three things I need to think about? Like in three things. Three basic about. ones. Three basic things. And you, you mentioned one earlier to give you a running start at that, but like it's the dwell time, I guess, or what, how do I get people to engage with the space? Um, I mean, I, I, you really need to get your operations right. And when I say operations, how that impacts on the design. I mean, if the design Mm. is such that, and this is something we really work on, is we'll sit down with the client and go through their business model upside down and work through every aspect of what they're doing. Because what I want to also understand is, how can my design minimise your staff in the quiet times? So you can run the thing on a shoestring. You might only have two or three people in the place. So at least I can minimise your overheads that way by good design. So what's an example of that? Just for an idiot. Well, like I just—I mean, making sure that the bar can run with one person, but yeah, a kitchen right. can run with two. Yeah. But I can have someone on a pass, and there can be some guy around bussing tables and things like yeah. that. If we can do that, great. Right. But what the flip side of that though is, we've got to make sure that when the place is packed on a Friday night, mm. yeah, it's pumping. I can get the booze out. I can get <coughs> the food out. That kitchen can operate. That that pass has got efficiencies to it. It's got power to it. And that's, I guess, the trick of what we try to do. And make sure, you know, the simple shit, like that the, the garbage can get out. That the guys, that the, the patron doesn't have any idea that, you know, there's this beautiful duck running across the water, but underneath it, it is a fury. That's the, if we've done our job properly, they only see from the waterline up. Yeah. And I guess like... There's yeah. no, sorry, mate, there's, there's nothing yeah. worse than seeing garbage being run through a venue. Mm. Or, you know, a trolley coming through with a case of beer. So that's the sort of stuff that we also try to work on. So, so, so starting with operations is, is absolutely essential to it. And, yeah, and then uh, so 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 far we've got two. One is, um, <laughs> oh, but then, and, and this isn't me just trying to get free advice, by the way. But um, in, if, if I did, I'd be saying okay. But I'll, then the next big thing is narrative. Yeah. So and how do you intersect with narrative and design? At what point do we you start will sit down and we will workshop those things from get go. Because I would imagine there would be, I feel like we're pumping tyres quite a lot, but it's not intentional. I genuinely do not think there would be many designers, I've certainly not worked with one before, other than yourself, who would take you down that path. Um, I can't talk for anyone else. It's yeah. just the way that we work. Yeah. The one thing that's been, 
you know, every venue we've ever done has been a collaborative effort. Mm. I'm not going to put my hand up and say that we were solely responsible for any of them. Yeah. You know, we've been really lucky in that a lot of our good clients, well, most of our clients are good clients, they've been people who are informed and engaged. And we sit down, we have a, you know, serious conversation. Benchmark, what, what, who are you trying to compete with? Where do you see yourselves? Here, overseas, wherever it happens to be. And what does that look like? Mm. What does that feel like? What's it taste like? You know, what is the lighting level like? And you go through all those those things and you slowly tease out from all these influences and, you know, um, eventually, hopefully, we come up the other side and there's something where, you know, all those different characteristics are all singing from the same song sheet. Mm. And then that's when you get something special that, that works. The thing that occurs to me just listening is that all three of us are service providers to an industry in one way or the other. So, Luke, in terms of recruitment, me in terms of media marketing, to say, and um, and and yourself, Chris, in terms of design. But the, I think the success of a venue, from what you're describing, in you, from your world, is a combination of how well your design supports operations and tells that narrative. But ultimately, over a period of time, it's going to be a function of how does that client and its team continue to deliver a product well in, in, Absolutely. in concert I mean, with the design. Yeah, but that's, and that's where we will really try to work hard with our client to bring out of them the best of their what they're thinking is the offer. Yeah. So we don't just sit there and think about, oh, it's a pretty design, wonderful. Do you ever argue? Do you, I'm <laughs> sure you do. But do, you, do, you just go, <laughs> do you just ever go, nah, sorry, that, no one's going to buy wine at 500 bucks a bottle. We need like wine at 600 bucks. So when I come in, I can... Like, what, how much of an argument do you get into with clients? Um, it's not so much an argument. I think it's more a case of... Collaboration, negotiation, negotiation, <laughs> influencing, slow manipulation. Um, you know, I think if you can't sell your vision to your client, you're not going to sell it to the customer. And what at what point does that become a deal breaker? Or has it in the past where you've actually said, "I do not believe in what you're trying to achieve"? Um, We've certainly had a few projects where I've said to clients, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but let's roll the dice. Right. Absolutely. Example? (laughs) (laughs) Have you been proven wrong? You don't have to give a name? Um, No, no. I mean, I'm going to say there's been, I think, realistically, God, two venues that we've worked on that just haven't worked. Yeah. And not for want of trying with the design. Yeah. But you could just tell that, putting a restaurant with a German theme in it in a building that had failed previously as a restaurant possibly wasn't going to work. Dying to know. Jump on <laughs> well, Google real quick. I'll be, I'll be back <laughs> in a second. We'll, we'll link that up in the show notes. <laughs> but um, no, but I mean, you know, that's sort of credit to you in a sense that that, that and no doubt that there's there's no um, there's others that have sort of. I mean, I think what the other thing we do is as well we take a you know we we all run our own businesses the three of us. And you, through that process of running your own business, you get to understand, you know, what is it that's going to make this thing tick? Mm. What is it that's going to make it financially work? Yeah. You know, our biggest, you know, at H&D, our, um, you know, the, the, our best marketing ploy is the fact that most of our customers come back to us. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have to go out and, and 
argue the point and sit down and, you know, let's do a fee negotiations, obviously, but it's, it's a lot easier when you've got a few runs on the board. Because it's Wednesday, and Wednesday night is the night that we usually make love. Tuesday night is the night that we usually go to your mother's place and I teach her how to use the video machine again. But Wednesday night is the night that we make a love. When everything is just right, you're not too tired from your after work social netball team practice. There's nothing good on TV. We touched on it very briefly before, but in kind of, I guess, the hierarchy of um, characteristics that create a successful venue. Realistically, without your H and E hat on, mm -hmm. where do you put design? Because we we're, we're spoken about it a lot. In I think it's charts. it's just as important, personally, as the quality of the food, the quality of the beverage, the quality of the service. I think if there are obviously always exceptions to the rules, and mm. you can walk into it, you know, there are places where the food's just so good, and it doesn't matter. You, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. But, you know, the flip side of that is we've all been to places where you walk in and go, oh, this feels good. And, you know, you've mm. had, it's had a bit of attitude from a waiter and you've had a shit bar experience and the food's turned up and it's not been great. And guess what? You go back the week later because yeah. it was was memorable. Yeah. There's, and, and that's why I ask. Cause we, I mean, we've had conversations multiple times, haven't we, where talking about the businesses where it is either the product that's, totally outshines what could be an amazing design or a terrible design, but it just keeps keeping mm. coming back. But being able to really kind of crystallise what makes a venue successful consistently, I think you'll continue to have that great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so. sure there's an answer. Well, I think it's like an equation, isn't it? That's the So these things are variables, no? Yeah. That's how I think about publishing in the same way. It's like, well, in some cases, if you're maxing out on the food, then there's I mean, you know, You're talking about... I mean, even service is subjective. Mm. What you consider shit, I might think is pretty good. Yeah. And so, you know, food and bev, design, what I think's great, you might walk in and go, oh, it's a bit overdone, mm. it's a bit cold, whatever it happens to be. Whereas I might walk in and they're sitting there go, you know what, wow, this is really, you know, I'm digging this. And there's this also really this good. element of longevity that comes to mind, isn't it? Because oh, the thing is, that's, that's, the, 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 that's really what we're talking about is, Classically, you know, in Sydney or I guess major markets, the question is whether or not not whether you can open a venue and get people to come to it. The question is, can you open a venue and keep people coming back to it over a long period of time? So, I mean, we all want to be creating institutions, yeah. but there can only be so many of That's them in right. the city. That's right. Is your best advice then typically to create? I mean, you mentioned Fraser again. One thing I took away from working with him was that he always said we want to have venues that have a, a really high acceptance rate. He always used to say, you know, 75 to 80%. So if 75% of people could walk into the venue and say they felt comfortable there, that was a really good result. Is that part of the way you know? I don't think I've ever really thought of it in those terms. I can sort of see where he's coming from. Um, I guess in terms of... Creating something that is widely accepted as opposed to, or is, is it purely oh, the, dependent on the... But the flip side of that may be you, you might have, you can design a venue where, it is, and it's much more targeted. It might be that... Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the the conundrum when it comes to designing hospitality venues. Um, you know, I know you think about something like um, Baxter's Inn for Agency. Mm. 
it's probably a large percentage of the population who wouldn't actually accept the fact they're walking up a laneway and then down through a fire escape to get into the bar. See, I... And, but I know, but I think there is this... But the percentage of the market that loves that wants to go back to it time and time yeah. again, and that's the difference. I think, you know, I think you can, you can target 25% of a market, as long as but that's 100% of everybody you only care about. And that's sometimes where we sit down from a design perspective and we will actually be much more specific about what is it we're trying to achieve. Like, who are you after? I mean, the, the, from a designer's perspective, the worst brief in, in history of worst briefs, in hospitality, of bad briefs, is um, I want to attract anyone from 18 to 80. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're like, holy Toledo, where, is, where, does that, where, where do I go with that? Like, Tax office. Uh, and, but I mean, you're going to end up with something as potentially a bit beige yeah yeah you know it's you, you, because you, what you what you're setting yourself up for is i don't want to offend anyone mm. not as opposed to i want to i want to make them feel yeah, really got, yeah, switched but, on and i want to make them feel comfortable and i want that i want there's no positive emotion out of that you're starting from a point of view of whoa mm. or hang on if i do that that's going to offend that person if i do that's going to offend that person they're not going to find that comfortable um you know you mentioned it before um opera bar was a Really tricky brief, yeah. um, because but, but you end up with this thing: like the, the trust, the operas trust, wants something that is benign by nature. Yeah, it's got to attract literally a mum pushing a stroller, sitting down to have a bite to eat, to a group of nineteen-year-olds on a Friday night out for a good night. Yeah. And you've got everything in between. So how do you actually? That's it's a really hard brief to actually yeah. satisfy. But and I want to like drill into a venue like Chiswick in that sense because Chiswick yeah, was one that was really easy really but like that's a a, a, a venue that caters yeah. for 18 to, or even lower like you know yeah, it does but it only does it purely because we created something but you know what there, I, I can guarantee you to be you're talking about a very specific part of the population though yeah. mm-hmm. I mean that is yeah. from our perspective yeah. like the eastern suburbs dining room yeah yeah right yeah okay. you know um, gotcha. it was you know, we had a couple of really strong elements there that came from our clients. You know, Matt Moran was saying, I just, I'm going to cook food there that I cook for myself on a Sunday evening. Yeah. Pete Sullivan saying, we're going to build a vegetable garden, we're going to produce... You know, those two elements alone, and suddenly you've got something really strong. Yeah. Some great bones. Where you go. Four and a half million bucks later, there you go. So, Chris, uh, mate, 2009 to 2019, it's a good little... Well, I'm saying 2009 because that's my recollection of when Sugar <laughs> Mill was, but let's um, just go over the last 10 years. And, and since you've been in design, what's changed, um, I guess, in terms of customer expectations in what they're seeing in hospitality venues from your perspective? <laughs> Everyone's a critic. Yeah. You know, rise of social media has really put a lot of pressure on everybody. I mean, the amount of second guessing that goes into every project we work on is, it's it's difficult to deal with. Um, Once again, going back to that point I made earlier about the amount of money that our, you know, people are having to spend to just to open the doors. Mm. So you're sitting there and you're going, hang on, I've got two and a half, three, four, five, 
ten million dollars on the line here. More. Um, this has got to work. And so suddenly, you know, that the, the pressure to make to perform, you know, to hit your targets and to make sure that that turnover figure that you need every week, pumping it out, that's that's really challenging. And so clients are sitting there, and one of those big things, particularly in the early stages, is the design. Mm. And so, you know, something's opened here, something's opened there, I've been overseas, this is happening. Mm. Huge amount of influence, massive amount of influence. Um, you know, everybody, most of our clients have it Instagrammers yeah. constantly looking at what's happening around the world. And that's it's a, it's a real pressure, you know. I've got to get this right. Yeah. Particularly when you start, as I said, you start factoring in that amount of money that's been spent on these businesses. It's, it's a challenge. So, yeah, um, it's, I know, I, 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 you feel sorry for some of our clients sometimes when they, when they open that, you know, we're getting close to finishing the thing and you think, okay, my job's done, good mm. luck. And you sort of kiss the baby on the, on the bum and push it out the door and, and hope like hell that it works. But, you know, it, it is. It's a, that, 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 social, that pressure to, to perform. And, you know, they, people will. They, will they, don't, they don't hold back. The customer base these days is pretty brutal. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's not much... Sorry, you can tell me otherwise, but, like, yeah, you've, you've kissed the baby. It's out there. Uh, what do you do? You know, it's not like you're going to go back and redesign a venue yeah, quickly. Mate. We're lucky. Yeah, favourite project's the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, if, you know, we've always, you know, various stages of gestation. There you go. Oh, I'm just... In terms of if you say... Uh, compare your thought process to Sugar Mill to your most recent project. Oh. What were the consi- what were the different considerations? Because uh, as we spoke about earlier, you know, places we reference Coogee Pavilion a lot, but a business that has obviously a really high integration for families, mothers in particular, looking after kids and play areas that would not have been seen really, I, th- I think, as commonly as it is these days, ten years ago. Um, that's a pretty big evolution within the market. Open kitchens, for example, obviously yep. really prevalent. Um, what, what kind of things are you considering these days that you may not have considered five, ten years ago? Oh, wow. Well, yeah, what would you recommend as well? Maybe no, I mean, way putting... Once again, I, 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 the way we work about these things is, is much more considered than necessarily looking at... And it's a bit sad in some respects. We, you've, you've got to be mindful of that those trends and what's happening but every site is so specific mm. everything that that client's trying to achieve with well from my client's perspective what they're trying to achieve it can be very different um universal trends yeah there are some but i think if you know the, the, it still comes back to the basics and it can is the meal good was the service good is the venue comfortable is it this is it that um you know i think what the guys at Merivale have, have done in a lot of their venues with the kid kid friendly sort of mix and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's certainly permeating a lot. But they they I don't think that's a new trend. What they did was they took something and made it sophisticated. Mm. But they made it sophisticated in a way that was taking it old school. So you know, I, I look at it and you know I'm I'm a, a father of a nine month old and I look at you know I've also got two older kids. And I look at the changes in the way we're raising <laughs> children these days, and it's like we've gone backwards with raising kids. Like there's this such a thing about you know I 
a lot of new parents are really trying to get away from technology and they're trying to change those things. And I see that with what Merivale have done and whether they've done it intentionally or it's just something that's happened. But it's kind of old school. You know, there's tic-tac-toe, there's noughts and crosses, there's... Yeah. You know, um, scrabble boards, there's shuffleboard, yeah. it's interactive, it's about in getting your kids running around and engaging and things like that. It's not about suddenly I'm going to put a pinball machine and a Space Invaders and mm. a computer. It's not that anymore. And so, you know, is there a trend? Well, it's, it's possibly, you know, if I was going to think about it, it's possibly a little bit more about how you're educating your kids and what's going on with mm. educational trends. As I say, whether Merivale have done that intentionally or it's just been something that's happened by happenstance but you know I, I guess from my perspective that's where I'd sort of sit there and look at it and go that you know I think they've been really clever mm. with the way that they've integrated those sorts of things that it's more about interaction yeah and I like just drawing back to your earlier comments about um, what I'm calling dwell time but you had a better word for describing it like how do you get people comfortable in space and and um, um, engaged for a longer period of time and it is I think one of my um, own views on the market is that the out environment, the out um, economy's got to do a better job of competing with the home economy, uh, in, and and there's devices are ubiquitous at home, um, mm. everywhere. So you know, if you, if you look at venue design, then to what extent can it break that connection? You know, the, the dependence on, and so mm. so like putting in computer screens into venues and things like that. Um, I sit there and go personally. Um, um, <laughs> what's the point? Like, you know, yeah. I, the, those, this is me personally. It's like, and you know, it's that moment, but going to to a, to a um, to a restaurant and being able to order on an iPad or on a screen, I'm like, why would I do this? You yeah, know? No, like, no, I agree. But but um, and I think that that's a, maybe they've done it deliberately or not. But that's a good insight into you know what the out economy's got to try and do. I think, um, yeah. It's something also, I mean, the way you guys integrated different spaces at the Prince, Yep, I thought was pretty amazing. I didn't actually know that you guys did that until today, but that breakup of kind of zones and this area is for this versus that area being for that. Absolutely. Is, um, it's about, you know, making everybody in their market comfortable to come to one venue. Yeah. You know, if I'm... If I just want to be around the blokes and, and have a punt on a Friday afternoon and watch some football... I've got a section of the market in that business that I can go to and mm. feel absolutely comfortable doing what I want to do. But if I'm a young family, I can go there and do that as, at the other end of the hotel. If I'm a group of mates and out with the group, there's another section. So, you know, we're sort of catering for all sectors of the market. I mean, you've, you've got to have a pretty big venue to allow it to happen. Yeah, and that's that's the challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you, the, Sydney loves a big venue, I think, much more so than, say, Melbourne. Um, yeah, Melbourne's it's coming along though. It's getting yeah, it's like, like there's a couple of those big, yeah, absolutely. You like know. what specifically the Sandhill Road guys? Like, yeah, yeah. You know. But but it's a bit with man. I think they are large large venues, but they I do see them as sort of sixty yeah, percent the size. You know, like the, um, <coughs> yeah, those two venues in particular. Um, but I mean, here's one for you. Like it's uh, I'm banging on about how Sydney's nightlife's dead, right? And um, um, and most numbers are tending to support that. But you're flat out as a lizard drinking like, on a number of projects. But mm -hmm. how come? Those two things cannot both be true. I, I, I can't be saying it's dead and you... Mm. Like, I, what, mate, what's keeping you busy? Um, we've still got our core of CBD 
city-based projects, but I can tell you, um, huge growth in the suburbs. You know, we've got probably a, a dozen projects in the outer suburbs of Sydney. Some of them are, you know, substantial projects where we're spending fifteen, eighteen million dollars. Mm. Um, but then further afield from that, you know, I think there's been a in the last two years probably um, a lot more interest in, in particularly country pubs. So that's been something that we've been really seeing has been interesting. Is the yeah, and I, I think that's probably also a a, a reflection on the, the perceived value of a country pub as opposed to mm. trying to start playing back in the city market. I mean, the the, the price that pubs have been trading for in Sydney has been ridiculous. Mm. Um, if you sit down and, I mean, as we do, if you sort of sit down and look at a uh, a multiple price on a, a pub based on its profitability in Sydney. Sometimes you're looking at them going, "Wow, how does that make sense?" Mm. Whereas I can go and buy a massively underperforming country pub. I can pick it up for a couple of million bucks. It might have 15, 18 poker machines attached to it as well, and I can go and spend a million dollars out there. And suddenly, I've created a real beacon in their local community, and so that, that's got a lot of a lot of attraction. And so that's what one of the big things we're seeing is, is, is exactly that happening. Yeah. How close are your conversations and your designs to those which you're doing in the CBD areas? Like, are you finding that the consumer is looking for a similar oh, experience yeah, out there? They are, absolutely. But there's yeah, a line right. in the sand you've got to draw. Yeah. You know, there's a point beyond which you should not... You don't have to go either. Right. You know, I mean, the, the, don't forget... I mean, by the way, it's not like there's suddenly this huge amount of money sitting out there in the country... It's, it's just that we're attracting them to come in and spend a little bit more mm. and come out a few more times more often. Because, you know, traditionally, I guess, you know, a country publican, you know, I don't want to sound elitist about this, but they possibly, you know, an expression we like to use, weren't giving their customers enough love. Mm. If you show that customer that you care about them and that you're going to invest in them, and that's why we look at it with our clients is we, we talk about that investment in your client. We're doing this because we can see that your clients are going to actually think this is, wow, wow, you've come into my town and you've done this. I mean, it's it's quite often with the country stuff as well. We find that um, particularly if it's a city guy is moving out there, they've actually got to break through a bit of a, mm. you've got to break through a bit of a ceiling there to actually feel acceptance from that local community. And so sometimes that's a bit of a challenge as well. And you can just be a, there's a perception that, oh, hang on, old Joe down the end of the street there has been running the pub for 40 years. I'll still go there, yeah. even though he hasn't invested in the pub for a long time. Place doesn't look great. Food's pretty ordinary. Been doing the same thing for 40 years. So, you know, it's, it, that, it, it does have its challenges as well. Mm. I mean, we see that right up kind of central coast mm. land anywhere kind of a four-hour perimeter and, and perhaps beyond from a people perspective as well because where you go, we probably tend to go after you once the place is built yep. and they need a really strong head chef who can ex- execute a new a new menu, a new food approach and a new, um, you know, a new general manager to But that's an interesting point you make because from our perspective, we want to be engaging with that head chef. At the beginning. Ahead of the Absolutely. Mm. We want to be having a conversation with them about where they're going and what they're perceiving is, you know, and it's, you know, we all know chefs will move, chop, change. Yeah. Menus will change. But if you've got that feedback from the get-go, mm. 
man, you can really produce something that's sort of got a lot more authenticity about it. Mm. Over-abused word, but it's still got a lot of strength to it. each other for well, I don't know five or so years and um, I think uh, this guy gets so much mental on our podcast but we'll do it again Tim Fishwick may have introduced us and um, and and um, he God help it God help <laughs> and uh, and and he goes to me Mike he goes look I've introduced you a lot of people but um, Grim's a bit different you know he may and 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 when I met you he's like I've got it I'm like yeah and, uh, and then he said to me after, he goes, if he's that much of a wanker, <laughs> can you imagine how good he is at his job? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I, I don't know, I figured, um, you know, let, let's, uh, let, let's leave uh, value judgments aside. But the thing that, and we've got to know you a bit over the years, hey, and um, the thing that strikes me about you is, like, is your work ethic. Um, and lack thereof, or... You- Oh, I'm having a moment here. <laughs> I'm trying to have a moment here, and you're like, Sorry, but it's um, like, and, and you know, you go hard. I think it's fair to say, and it's just it's one of those things. You, you, the quality of work you, you generate, the clients you have, it's not luck. It just can't be, you know, over that period of time, ten years. Um, what drives you? Like, why? What drives anyone? Um, God, that's a question. It's probably, um, it's a mixture of things, um, you know, wanting to do the right thing. I mean, I certainly was lucky enough that I had a, I grew up in a house where my old man actually lived not too far away from where we're sitting right now, but certainly when Roselle wasn't the sort of salubrious sort of mm. place where a lot of people want to live. Mm. Um, when my old man grew up in, in Roselle, um, most of the guys around here were wharfies. There was a pub on every corner and it was a six o'clock wheel and mm. X, Y, and Z. I mean, my old man dropped out of school when he was 14 just to help get a job so he could help make ends meet. And whether I've developed my work ethic from watching him work his way up from being a motor mechanic at uh, Stack & Co down at Rushcutters Bay to the operational lines of a large property development firm in Sydney, yeah, maybe there's something in that. But, you know, I... It's also, I mean, I love what we do. I mean, I, I love what we do. It's a huge passion. Um, and to get paid to do something you love, it's a pretty sweet wicket to be playing on. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's that's a large part of it. There's ego involved. I mean, you want to do a good thing. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, <laughs> it's also about, you know, um, I, I, I like to get paid well for what I do. Got to support my friendships, mate. <laughs> <laughs> What's the feeling like when you walk into a business that you have obviously it's conceived? A, and it's a funny thing because there's um, there's been lots of great venues we've opened and, and going... It's a bit of a cliche in our office because the, the... And I think I said it to you earlier, the best project in our office is the next one. Mm. 
Um, but, you know, there, there are still places. I mean, I love to go to a lot of our venues. I mean, Chiswick holds a dear place in my heart and I still go there on a fairly regular basis. Um, there's something about sitting in that bar space that I really mm. enjoy. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, and it was, I think it was probably the, the first time I'd really connected with one of our significant clients, Bruce Solomon. Yeah. And so that, from that perspective, that was really important as well. So Bruce and his team, Anna Solomon as well, you know, the, the, the connection we dealt, we developed with those guys through that project. I mean, you talk about openings. I still remember the, uh, a great little anecdote for you. The, the first Friday night, that place was in operation. Mm. Um, I think we'd opened on the Wednesday. The first Friday night was in, God, middle of March, maybe towards the end of March. Um, I can't even remember when. Was it five years old now? Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, that Friday night, they had, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's there with the table. Paul Keating was with the table. Um, and uh, just to sort of top it off, they had uh, Michael Schumacher, Mick Doohan and half of Ralph. And it was nuts. Just the, the kudos of that developed from that get-go. It was like it was suddenly the, the place in the distance suburbs to go and have a casual dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something, I mean, actually, funnily enough, something I actually would love to talk to you guys. I mean, it was, that was one of those key things for me was that casualisation of fine dining. Yeah. And to me, that was the first time I'd actually really stuck my toe in the water with that. Yeah. Well, that's not a passing thing, is it? No. Like it, it's, no. Yeah, that's I, mean, I, I still, I mean, I love going out and having a white tablecloth event. Um, but it's pretty rare in Sydney these days to yeah. find it. And, and that's, yeah. you know, there's a lot of places you can go to and get a $60 steak these days. Yeah. But are you getting that <laughs> that level of service attached to it in there? accoutrements that yeah. come with that yeah it's a venue that you would suggest is bordering on institution if it's not already you know in terms of being recognised as a Sydney institution yeah, really. I mean well, it has to be actually probably about seven or eight years I reckon that it's been open I yeah. Oh, so, and absolutely. that's it, like to be trading at the levels that it is still currently trading after that long is pretty yeah, and that's incredible a, yeah Absolutely, which is why, you know, if you were going to, if I had to put my hat on a, a venue that I was really proud of, it's certainly one of them. Definitely. Definitely. Would there be one that tops it? Because that was going to be one of my questions. Oh, um, oh there's been weird ones. I mean, Opera Bar was crazy because we had four weeks to spend four million bucks on the fit out. Like, the turnover rate was that nuts. So, you know, that always, that holds something significant to me. But that was purely on a... You know how they. I still sit back and think how the hell did we document and build that thing in that shorter period of time? Yeah, and it was down to an amazing team of people we worked with and great builder and great project management and all the rest of it. So you know this, yeah, we've oh god, venues at top it. Chiswick still got huge amount of and, and love from it. And, and in terms of getting in design in the first place, because I recall you telling me one night, um, Jesus, that, that's scary. That, um, <laughs> that it wasn't always. I mean, you didn't start life. In design, no. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but I mean, I want to talk about it seriously for a second. Like you, were, you were sort of running at a state level, and I mean, not for politics, but uh, but <laughs> no, in terms of athletic, in yeah, athletics, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, in athletics, right? Like yeah. sprinting. No, that, that was yeah. yeah I yeah. Talk no. through that, like. Oh well, like God. You, I mean, I, I, I 
we have fun back to you when we get Michael. I don't know, man. Like, you, you, you're quick at getting a glass of wine into you, but, like, in terms of, like, <laughs> those, same, those same skills, like, you they'll be taught I mean, They'll tell you why, because, like, ultimately, like, I want to ask you another question, too, is about, you know, like, performing at a high level, generally speaking, mm. because, you know, you did that, like, in a, a, so, a young age. number of things. So, you, 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 yeah, I mean, I was massively involved in athletics when I was a kid, and it was life-changing for me. Um, as someone who really socially didn't really fit in when they were at high school, to suddenly find that niche in my life that connected with me, which at that stage was was sprinting, it was running, um, and then to devote, God, if I think back on it, five years of my life to to that cause, and it was it, it was once again it wasn't so, it was something that I kind of fell into as well, mm. and then realised that it was something I was good at, and training six days a week, twice a day was something I enjoyed and really putting that that effort in was... And I wasn't good because I was naturally gifted. I was a good runner because I just worked bloody hard. Yeah. And so that, you know, that was one thing. Um, that led to another, which was a whole other part of my life where, yeah, yeah I can see where you were we'll, going. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that one after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, no. you know, I... But, um, <laughs> I, I for, for <laughs> Carl, you have to but, Yeah, no, for, for, for Luke's benefit. So I actually ended up, believe it or not, um, and Michael's laughing because it is a, it's a curious little story. Um, no. I, <laughs> that comes later. Um, <laughs> uh, through happenstance, which I really can't be bothered going through right now, I ended up as a masseuse. <laughs> You've got... Yeah, I So I finish high school, I go to university, <laughs> I drop out of university um, to have a crack at athletics. I actually was full-time and then mm. injuries got in the way. I uh, had a... Yeah. What kind of masseuse? A sports masseuse. Oh, right. Not a slap and tickle, mate. Don't worry. There, no, there were no R&Ts involved. Okay, that's good. <laughs> but um, I actually ended up, funnily enough, working with you, uh, a number of really high-profile Australian athletes heading overseas, working with those guys, and then through, once again, that strange kiss of luck that seems to have happened to follow me around a little bit, I ended up working with a guy called Linford Christie and another guy called Colin Jackson, and I worked mm. for them for a number of years. Yeah, right. And so I spent, shit, three years travelling the world as masseuse for a guy who was the fastest man in the world at the time. Yeah, okay. I'll tell you one thing that has, and I've always taken this on board, the one thing that that experience taught me more than anything was, A, you know, if you want to hear it all, hard work, pays for rewards, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't the biggest lesson I learned, was how to deal with an ego. How to deal with people and their perceptions of what's right and what's wrong and all their baggage that comes with them. That was probably the biggest thing that I dealt, learnt out of that, was actually how to deal with people. And that's really stood, that's been probably, I'm going to say, the, the biggest secret to the success in anything you do is actually dealing with people and actually learning to deal with massively complex personalities with mm. egos the size of, you've got no idea. Yeah, well, so, especially, especially in hospitality, like in terms oh, of. Oh, God, I mean, yeah, 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 so, yeah. everyone knows what they're doing. Hmm. I'm right, you're wrong, fuck off. Mm. And See, yeah, it's, it comes up so often with that. In the last podcast with Johnny Muberak. He owns Gerard's Bistro up yep. in Brizzy. But he was a guest primarily because he's he and Justine, probably the two people that were spoken about humility in terms of the way they approach hospitality. Because it is an industry that is fairly well dominated by quite egocentric people. Yeah, just look at this roof, fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, 
mean, go, yeah, but you, it's, it's about risk taking, man. It's a massively risky venture oh, to start a hospital. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a wallflower, you're not going to do it. It's true. You know, fuck, you've got to sell yourself. You've got to go, I mean, if you're starting out, you've got to go to a bank mm. and sell yourself on them. If you're sitting there going, uh, uh, um, oh, yeah, maybe, or oh, I don't know. Mm. If you walk in that room and own it mm. and mm. you show someone your absolute conviction that, man, I know this shit. I'm going to, I'm going to reinvent hospitality. Someone's going to lend you money, mm. whether it's a bank or private equity, whatever it happens to be, or it's just your bloody dad, you know. If you don't have that conviction about how you're doing things, you're never going to get anywhere. And just on the people piece, I've got a couple of questions, but one in terms of dealing with ego and I guess channeling some of the stories that you've given me other times, like is, you know, with those champion sprinters, I mean, part of what you need to do is to make sure that they're on the track. Yeah. And, um, and I guess in some ways sort of save them from themselves. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and is that in terms of what you do these days? Because... Is there what is the yeah? You've some if you, with our better with our clients we know, absolutely you have some pretty frank conversations. Mm. Sometimes you know we've walked people away from projects, and I think that's you know I can think of a couple of projects we've been involved with where I had big fat fees sitting there if they went ahead with it. But you sit back and you go, you know what? There's no way this makes sense for a myriad of reasons. Mm. Are we going to have planning approval? Is the rent too high? Is this too high? Saying and the due diligence around this does not stack up. Yeah. Um, and I think that stood us in good stead because our clients then suddenly go, "Hang on, this these guys are actually after it. They've got our back." Mm. You know, it, it long. It, hopefully, we become part of our clients' business. Well, they don't even think about it. That's the aim for any service provider. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. You just want to be the person they're going to go to because, you know what, they've got my back. They've got my back. I mean, we missed out on a project recently and I had a laugh because we missed it. And um, uh, I think the reason we missed it and when I questioned the the potential client on it was that uh, our design was perceived as not being... Edgy. Enough. I was about to say, I could it wasn't edgy enough, and I sat there and thought, "Hang on, you guys want to deliver a project in five months? You've got a tight budget. You've got a shitty set of planning controls. An old heritage building, which you know, there's a whole of you know, a lot of hairs around it, and we considered all the hairs. Yeah, and we missed it because we weren't considered edgy. And you just sit back sometimes and go, oh, you know what? Yeah, good luck. Yeah, dodge the bullet. Dodge the bullet. Absolutely. Yeah, like we in the. But media, it is frustrating. In the media world, we get this <laughs> stuff all the time, and it's just a big fuck you to all the media agencies out there who come going. Can we have a um, media first? I'm like, well, you can, but you know the thing about media first is it's one in a hundred times it works. You know, so do you want to just burn your clients' money, or do you actually want something that works? You know, these are the two. These are the question, mm-hmm. and um, it's just like. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we miss out on projects all the time, but it's like, well, A, it wouldn't have, it, and inevitably it fails. Secondly, I don't want my name attached to it if it does, you know, uh, you know, um, so, so, you know, when it fails and just people just don't always want to hear. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not so worried about projects necessarily missing them because I see they're going to fail because hopefully if I've done our job properly, we're going to be half of the way there to actually making sure that's not the case because mm-hmm. I'm going to ask people, questions which aren't design related mm-hmm. they're going to impact on the design and they're going to help me understand the narrative that we need to develop but they may not be 
be-all and end-all design-related questions. And if we sort of throw a few curly ones at our clients based on, you know, 10, 15 years of experience of doing this, you sit back and you go, hang on, have you thought about X, Y, Z? It's, that must be really difficult, though, to get your head around because I know you've obviously achieved it's, that. But, but you, the frustration's probably more around you help someone develop a business model, but I'm getting paid as an architect. But then, <laughs> but then you walk away <laughs> that's why you go and talking. they can totally fuck that up very quickly. Like you have oh, but, you know, provided but, a platform that they can use to but do you know what I, I, You can, but as I said, you know, you, there's only so much you can do. Hmm. Um, otherwise, I'd be... I'd have my own little hospitality empire yeah. sitting behind me somewhere. Have you ever thought of that? Yeah. Would you ever do it? Oh, oh. What's your space? Toe in the water. Yeah, right. Toe in the water. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, that'd be something that'd be, you know, I think um, if you were ever going to have enough really strong influences on how you do something, mm. I've had enough of them. Yeah. Um, you know, we've worked with some really amazing chefs who really get how to make something successful yeah a lot of bartenders but you know a, a word that's not thrown around enough these days anymore a restaurateur mm. you know I think you can be a great chef but you can be a crap restaurateur mm. and someone who actually understands that front of house component mm. is, is really 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 important I think it's massively undersold you know, there's so much emphasis placed on a head as chef and a name of a chef, and they're going to be everything. But from where I sit, it's it's a a very significant part of the puzzle. But wholeheartedly, I'll put a big but in there that having someone who actually gets completely comprehensively that front of house component. Mm. You know, and unfortunately, you don't have a bloody good business head on you. I mean, how many cases have we heard lately? I mean, I'm sick and tired of picking up the newspaper and reading about someone getting underpaid. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what's going on with tax rules and business rules and everything else under the sun. I mean, Christ Almighty, it's a bloody hard business. Mm-hmm. It's it's bloody hard. You know, I I have... I still don't know where I land on that that topic in terms of payment. Obviously, businesses should be 100% compliant. They have to abide. The trouble is, mate, you've got rules, you've got laws, and that's the thing. You have a law. Absolutely. If you are in breach of that law, it's like speeding. I do it every day. But I do it knowing that if I get caught, you know what, fuck, I'm putting my hand in my back pocket and I'm pulling out my, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm paying a fine. And I'm living with the fact that I'm going to have to sit there and go, oh, mm-hmm. I've only got a point left. Um, that's life. But you you would see as as often as I do, I think the businesses that operate in a non-compliant manner within the hospitality sector right now, because for many of them to operate in a compliant manner, not expecting chefs to work more than 45 hours a week or managers to oh, do but the that's, same, that's, you know it's... It's a real challenge. If, if, if businesses all converted to being 100% compliant tomorrow, I there think the number that would close would be... Absolutely, but that's where you start to have to be creative with the way you run your business. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know about you two guys, but I know that I have to sit there and think about other ways of actually rewarding. I mean, Mike and I, had, you know this about me, and we've had this conversation earlier, that there are, we have three rules by every client we ever take on, mm. every project. You know, it's either got to be... We're going to make a lot of money out of it. It's going to be architecturally and design-wise really interesting and really challenging. Or it's mm. going to be a lot of fun. It's got to be two. It has 
to be two of those things. If it's only one, fuck off. It's none of them. Don't even bother. Mm-hmm. Um, Hopefully, and that's. Yeah. But that's that's the the trick is where I'm getting with that is that you've got to start looking at other ways of actually rewarding your staff mm. so that they're not having to sit there and watch the clock. I mean, it's the. You know, a, a lot of the pub guys have got the restaurant guys have got themselves into trouble. So they've been around. You know, probably more their part-time and casual staff. Mm. True. Totally. It's not the full-time guys. Yeah. Oh, some of them. Some. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but that, I, I think that's that's. If I was going to be really harsh, it's probably lazy. Yeah. Because shit, man, if you don't taking care of those key people who are going to be up you, if you haven't done the right thing by them, mm. the people are stupid. Once again, you're talking about social media and knows what's going on. Everyone knows their rules and their rights these days. I know I probably still don't know my rules and rights as a business owner as an employer. We've got a, a few questions we want to throw at you while we have the pleasure of your company and while we've still got half a glass of wine left. So why don't we um, jump into them? So um, favourite book or podcast that you've recently read Podcast, or to? I, I, I am a man who lives on the far northern beaches, so podcasts have become my godsend over the last... Mm couple of years but I've also since the rise of Donald Trump I've become a massive junkie on American politics really I love it <laughs> it's like watch, it's, it's like driving past that road smash that you can't you can't mm. help but slow down to have a bow peeper mm-hmm. and yeah the, the, um, there's a whole heap of them um, you know New York Times a massive subscriber of those guys I love reading their newspaper it's fantastic and they've got a podcast called The Daily Yes, which if you've ever partaken of the daily is something that I will. That's the, that's literally six o'clock when I get in the car in the morning. First thing goes on, Michael Barbaro. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, it's it's a fantastic thing to listen to. What a strong recommendation! I, was uh, I think we're actually on. both subscribing. <laughs> it's it's really good. It, it picks up. Uh, He's owning it, right? He's owning it. Look at oh it. man, it's um that that's fantastic. Um, the New Yorker magazine, their political hour. It's also a fantastic thing. Um, yeah, and if you really want to have it one, once a week, it's a it's an indulgence of mine on a Monday morning driving to work because it's a full hour. Is um, back of the house? Sorry, go. On. <laughs> Don't laugh so hard. <laughs> He's falling off his chair. Oh, no, I'm having one of those moments. For some, I'm getting old and a little bit seniors daft. Moment. Where I'm actually sitting having a seniors moment, thinking, "What's his bloody name?" But it's um, uh, um, Bill Maher. Real time oh, yeah. with Bill Maher. All right, hilarious, fantastic. Okay, absolutely gets a whole heap of, and he's he's slightly left of centre. But um, that's how we like them, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, what? So, so still in that vein, let's uh, talk about albums you're listening to or, or favourite artists right now. Mate, I'm. Do you know what? I, I'm as you, as Michael does know of me. I am technically challenged. 
And so, you know, I, 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 for those who, who probably most of you don't realise, I actually am, I run it as an architecture and design practice and I don't actually use a computer. I use actually this thing called a pen. <laughs> and I sketch everything and I then have these wonderful people who work for me who turn it into an amazing drawing. But um, what am I listening to? Anything on on my a Sonos player I'm using Spotify. Yeah, you know, yeah. To me, yeah. that's just... I open up a world of everything I've ever wanted to explore and every rabbit hole you could go down of exploring mm. different genres of music. It's just fantastic. So, what? Yeah. I mean, I... No, I think you. I, I still love Radiohead, yeah. and I will still throw Miles Davis on on far too many occasions. But you know, if I was going to say, yeah, the ability to sort of just sort of start chasing your tail, mm. yeah, and yeah. listening to all sorts of things is just. Yeah, well, you're in good company there. I was speaking to a leading DJ, and I said, "What's the best? What's your tips on putting together a playlist?" And he just said, "Just ask Spotify. Like, there's the other one will sort it out for you." Um, and so, and what about uh, your favourite drink right now? Um, and you're not allowed to say what's in your hand right now. That was seed lip. Seed lip. Yeah, you can't. You can't say seed. Favorite drink. I, I mean, I have had a, a penchant for an old fashioned over the years, as you know, <laughs> um, which have been my undoing on many an occasion. Um, wow, there's been too many cliffs that have fallen off on those things. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> there was that night where Chris is. I was ordering him Sazeracs, and he's like, "Mike, Mike, with those special old fashions." <laughs> <laughs> I still remember going up to. Uh, uh, it was um, it was uh, a wake of a dear friend of ours actually, Adam Spencer Carr. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we ended up at. Uh, in fact, you were there. Very possibly. We were at the, oh, at the, at brook. the brook. Yeah, it was. And it was one of those moments where you do walk up to the bar and order twenty eight old fashions because that's how many of us were there. Mind you, J- JD did not realise I'd also ordered three bottles of um, Winston Churchill champagne at the same time because he was picking up the tab. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wakes or, or a Monday night for some of us. All right, so, and, um, and, um, okay, now what about, um, how should we ask this one? It's a favourite venue question, but for this man, let's exclude anything he's... Do you know what? Uh, That's an easy one. I actually yeah. went to um, Bistecca recently. Mm. Oh, and yeah. was really, really taken with the place. I thought they're no, no phone. Yeah. Check your phone in at the front door. I just loved it. Mm. No one taking a selfie of their food. I could sit there and talk shit and not feel like, you know, not that you're that self-important, you're worried about people listening to you or checking shit out, but just it was just, it was really liberating, that experience alone. Yeah, right. Really impressed. Really impressed. Great. We've I've I've still um, get there. But you know, also, who who doesn't love their butter being served as a candle? Great. That's seriously. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I, I like the fact that they write down what the what I'm going to be paying on the paper napkin tablecloth as I'm going. So well, I sit there yeah. and add it up. Awesome. It's really good. It's it's uh, yeah. I've got to say, it's one of the revelations in in, in Sydney. Yeah. I think it's fantastic, wonderful, and uh, it's a nod to some guests who are coming up on the show soon. Uh, um, Warren Burns and Jimmy Brady. Um, so we might get them on next or or shortly. Um, and uh, and last but not least, who in the industry are you most inspired by? Wow. I mean, I've had a really tight relationship with Bruce Solomon and Anna Solomon over 10 years. Um, they were one of the first reasons we really ex- 
grew in this industry and if I was going to say anybody that's had a massive influence on us, it would be those guys. Everything we've ever done with them and there's been... Recently I had uh, happenstance to actually sit down and have to work out how many projects I've worked on with them and over 10 years it's been nearly 38. Wow. Yeah. And um, fantastic people. Mm. Really, really good. I mean, Bruce is... Yeah, we've, we've shared some really funny times together and some great times. We have a really honest, upfront, straight-shooting relationship. Good people and good businessmen. I don't think anyone in this room is going to object to that. No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, that's, that's us done today, Chris. Um, so uh, from both me and Luke, thanks for joining us on the Back of the House podcast. Cheers, uh, And here's to your many future projects. <laughs> also... A, 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 a thanks for all the great stuff you've done in the past because all those venues that you've created or helped being a part of, I suppose, at some level have you know, been enjoyed by people like me and, and no doubt many others besides. So thanks Cheers. again and uh, look forward to seeing you on the Back of House podcast again at some point. Mate, I look forward to it. Chris, what did you uh, what did you take away from that one? I always enjoy these. I feel a bit self-indulgent in the sense that you know someone for so long, but you don't actually ever get to sit down necessarily and dissect a bit of what they do. And yeah. I think that the bit that we've grappled with or, you know, in your previous uh, um, podcast and this one as well, it's that balance of what makes a great venue mm. or, or what makes an institution. And, and uh, we've talked about, you know, the balance between service and food and booze and design now and I think um, it was it was a great um, I just had no idea the extent to which he sat down with operations I guess or yeah. and, and, and thought about the business um, I guess it's unfair really to, to him but I had a perception it was a bit more this is the vision and now it's fit the operations in you know yeah. and, and I guess it's showing my ignorance in a way uh, I actually took a pretty similar thing away from it in that I thought, you know, when asking about what trends he's seeing, it would be about design as opposed to consumer, which might be, again, ignorant, but my perception would be that there are certain trends that people are trying to keep up with or to reiterate within the market, whether it be yeah. integrating kids' um, play into a business or open kitchens or these kind of design facets, but he's... Was his reference to service I thought was really interesting operations and then also the fact that consumers are just so vocal and have a have a platform through social media these days to provide feedback as yeah. being one of the key things that he considers yeah and I, I also uh, like I know, the discussion around narrative in that in, in much the same way with your time out lens you're always looking at you know, venues because what we we often write about stuff that's new and mm. interesting. But sometimes it's like, what what are you what are you contributing to the narrative? And like, and sometimes you can just see a pastiche of different concepts being put together because it's yeah. cool. What the sense I got out of that uh, insight from Chris is really one of what 
overall narrative of Ukraine for a period of time. So let's that's a that's a gimmick. Let's kick that to the curb. That's not going to work. Let's kick that to the curb. I've got that sort of sense, um, which I sort yeah. of, you know, when we look at it through a publishing lens and trying to make predictions around what's going to stick around for a bit, um, we, you know, we look at it from from a similar angle, I guess. The the interesting thing, and we could talk about this for as long as the podcast went potentially, but if you you know, we obviously talked about Chiswick a lot. And hearing his initial brief, it was super simple. It's like, I want a kitchen, I want to cook food that I cook for my family at home, and I want a kitchen garden. It's like everything else sort of happened around that. So it's kind of the design was product led. Yeah. So it's kind of, it does tie back into that conversation around product versus design, which one's more important. Perhaps integrating the two and having it seamlessly integrate is, is the answer. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but it sounds like at some point we're going to do a podcast for product or design, which one's more important. But yeah, I really enjoyed that chat with Chris and uh, look forward to uh, more conversations. But who have we got up next? I've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> <Neither> <laughs> we. We've got a couple of randoms. Let's just get them one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh.